Come now to the reading of the Word of God as found in Psalm 119, verses 81 to 88. Then we will also read Luke 24 and verse 44. Hear now the Word of the Lord. My soul languishes for thy salvation. I wait for thy word. My eyes fail with longing for thy word, while I say, When wilt thou comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget thy statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me without, they have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake thy precepts. Revive me according to thy loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of thy mouth. And in Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, before we begin to think about uh, Psalm 119, let me give you a little overview and background. We called to worship this morning with the shortest of psalms and the shortest of chapters. Psalm 119 is the longest of the psalms and the longest of chapters in the Bible. It is poetry laid out in an elaborate acrostic. It's based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, And so there are 22 stanzas in the psalm. Each stanza has eight lines or verses. And the beginning word of each line within a stanza corresponds to the letter of the alphabet. And so you'll notice at the beginning of the psalm, the Hebrew word Aleph. And then at the beginning of verse 9, the second stanza, Beth and then Gimel, and so on. And next, you will notice that almost every verse of the 176 verses references some part of God's revelation. The psalmist used seven primary references, word, promise, statutes, law, commandments, precepts, and testimonies. And I suppose if you were doing an extensive study of Psalm 119, uh, you could draw out the nuances of each of those words. But for our purposes this morning, uh, remember that they just collectively refer ultimately to the entirety of the Lord's covenant with Israel. 
And that's important to understand because tied to God's covenant, there are blessings for those who are faithful to the covenant and curses for those who rebel against it. So you might, uh, if you have your your Bible, uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and you'll see this here. Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 15 to 18. And so Moses uh, said, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And so Psalm 119 begins with a reminder of the covenant. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. And those opening verses are really the gateway to understanding the entire psalm. Now, who wrote this psalm? The answer to that is, God only knows. Some think that David wrote it because so much of the language is similar to other Davidic psalms. Some think it was Jeremiah who ultimately used a similar acrostic method based on the Hebrew alphabet in Lamentations 3. But ultimately, we don't know who wrote it but we do know why it was written, and I hope with the help of God we can think through that this morning. And perhaps there's a blessing in not knowing the author because in the anonymity of the authorship, we might more easily put ourselves into the psalm. So that's some of the background, uh, an overview of the psalm, but let me share with you the road I took to come to this text. Uh, When Phil offered uh, the opportunity to uh, teach this morning, I began to think about what I would teach, what subject, what text. I began thinking about God's goodness. What a great subject for Advent. I thought of a verse. God is good and does good. Where was that verse? Now, in former years, I would have 
taken out my concordance to look for that, but today, much too modern for that, I took out my trusted Bible app, went to the search term, uh, and found it. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. But here's the thing. When you teach a text, or really for your own purpose to understand a text, you have to understand it in order to teach it. And then to understand a text, you have to know the context. And so I set out to read all of Psalm 119. And I began to appreciate this psalm at a much uh, deeper level than I had before. Previously, I had just thought of it as poetic repetition of the psalmist's desire to know and keep God's law. So, for example, you'll see in the second stanza, uh, verses 9 to 16, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With your lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. But as I read the entire psalm, I came to see the psalmist as someone living through a long, long period of extraordinary personal affliction. And I can relate to that. And then as I read and reread the psalm, I began to see a divine purpose in the affliction. And lastly, I came to see and appreciate the psalmist's hope in all of his affliction. Again, these were thoughts that ministered to my need, uh, given some ongoing circumstances that I'm living through. As for the specific text this morning, verses 81 to 88, I think they encapsulate the thoughts of the entire psalm with verse 88, at the very center of the 176 verses, having the central theme or prayer of the psalmist. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. So again, with that overview and the background of the road uh, to this time, uh, let me introduce to you this unknown psalmist and his life of affliction. I invite you to track with me through some of the verses of the psalm. I will... Uh, I'll try to go slowly because I want your eyes to read along with me. Verse 19. 
I am a sojourner on the earth. Verse 22, I am the object of scorn and contempt. Verse 23, princes sit plotting against me. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Verse 36, I am tempted to selfish gain. Verse 37, I am tempted by worthless, vain, and empty things. Verse 39, I am an object of reproach. Verse 42, I am an object of taunts. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me. Verse 61, the cords of the wicked ensnare me. Verse 67, I have gone astray. Verse 78, the insolent, those who are proud and arrogant, have wronged me with falsehood. I trust you're getting some of the picture of this person's life and we're not even halfway through the psalm. Verse 95. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Verse 107. I am severely afflicted. Verse 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me. Verse 115, I am surrounded by evildoers. Verse 141, I am small and despised. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out. Verse 150, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause. Again, I think the life of affliction is summed up well in our text this morning, the 11th stanza of the 22 stanzas. Verse 85, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. Verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood. 
Verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. And last but not least, this great metaphor in verse 83, I am a wineskin in the smoke. Well, we're somewhat removed from the life of a person living in Israel in those days and how they may have hung up the wineskins in the tents and how those wineskins would have been affected by the smoke rising up. But here's the picture and the meaning. All this affliction that we've just read has made me feel dry and parched and for all practical purposes, useless. Notice, will you, the time markers that bracket this verse about the wineskin. The preceding verse, verse 82, when will you comfort me? And the following verse, 84, how long must your servant endure? What do these verses tell us? What do you observe here? Well, they tell us of the long duration of the psalmist's afflictions and troubles. Notice further that these time markers are questions. When? How long? What do these questions tell us? The trouble's not over. The psalmist is still in this time of affliction, and he can't see the end of it yet. Look at that word, persecute, in verse 84 and repeated in verse 86. The Hebrew word here has the idea of being chased and hunted down. Let me show you that in a couple of other texts. Uh, this word is used in uh, Genesis 31, verses 22 to 23. Please turn there. Genesis 31, verses 22 to 23. This is the story of Jacob as he is uh, leaving Laban and of Laban chasing Jacob. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob. That's our word, persecuted in the psalm. He pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. The word is also found in Exodus chapter 14, verse 23. There it is used to describe Pharaoh pursuing Moses and the Israelites. Exodus 14, verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them. Again, our word persecuted in the psalm, 
the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Back in Psalm 119, we see the idea of persecution in the chase in verse 150. They draw near who persecute or hunt me with evil purpose. Notice in that verse, persecutors draw near to me. What's the contrast? They are far from your law, O Lord. And so the persecutors are also far from the Lord. But again, in contrast to the pursuers, the Lord Verse 151 is near the psalmist. And as for the psalmist, his adversaries pursue him with lies and falsehoods. You know how difficult it is to defend yourself against lies and falsehoods? This past summer, we took a delightful trip to Colorado, and uh, we began it with a stop in Boulder. And so we spent part of the day walking around uh, some areas of, of Boulder, and we, my wife and I uh, walked past this uh, shop where you could get some food, some lunch, and something to drink, and it was pretty warm, so Joni sat outside in the fan under the shade, and I went in to get something to drink for us. And so I'm, I'm standing at the counter right next to the cash register. This young woman comes, takes my order, um, and she sat, sits down right on the counter. A large stack of money. I'm not paying any attention. She turns around to fill our orders, and I'm just waiting. She turns back around with the drinks, looks down, and the money's gone, and there's no one else around us. And she had this look like, you took that money. And so she said to me, did, did you see a stack of money there? <laughs> I went, and I noticed it's gone. And I said, uh, no, well, yes, well, maybe, I, I don't know. And she said, did you take that money? And I said, I, I promise you, I didn't take this money. And she said, would you, would you empty your pockets? And so, I'm, you know, I'm getting... <laughs> Flustered. This woman is accusing me of, of taking the money. And I had on my cargo shorts and I had dollar bills crammed down in the pockets of my cargo pants. And so I pull out my wallet and there's money because we had cash for the trip. And I have money separated from my wallet in my cargo pants unless I lost my wallet. And I have all this cash. And I said, well, this was mine before I walked in. And I couldn't convince her that I hadn't taken the money. Fortunately, the owner of the restaurant walked by 
And he said, here's the money. To my great relief, because I would have never been able to have proven <laughs> my innocence. Had she called the police and said, this man took my, our money, I would have had nothing. I couldn't have defended myself. Fortunately, he said, I took the money to teach my employee a lesson. She had set a stack of money on the counter, and then she turned away. And just in a flash, he had taken it. To my great relief, all was well, okay? But had that gone further, I would have been in great distress. Well, imagine this psalmist, lies and falsehoods. How do you defend yourself against that? Well, I wonder if you can relate to the psalmist. Either people or your circumstances are pursuing you and you're feeling like a wineskin in the smoke. Again, I can relate to all of that. Um, it's been a particularly challenging uh, length of months in our family business. Uh, keeping the doors open, not only for me and my family, but for the 40-some-odd families represented by our uh, associates. Some ongoing litigation with a man that we think defrauded us out of a substantial sum of money. So I can relate to this pressing affliction and this feeling of being dried up and parched. I think that's one of the virtues of the Psalms is that we can relate to the psalmist's emotions. And if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll recognize where the psalmist is. You know this place. It's called the Valley of Humiliation. Now, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison, knew much about the Valley of Humiliation. And so in writing about Christian going down into the valley, here's how he described it. Christian said in the book, as difficult as it was going up this hill called difficult, it is dangerous going down. There was a character named Prudence who was with him, and she said, yes, so it is. For it is a hard matter for a man to go down into the valley of humili humiliation as thou art now and to go down and catch no slip by the way. Therefore, said they who were with him, prudence and discretion and piety and charity, we are come out to accompany thee down the hill. And so Christian began to go down, but very warily, yet he caught a slip or two. And the lesson from Pilgrim's Progress is this. Don't stumble like Christian did when you find yourself going down into this valley of humiliation. Because if you do, the valley will become more difficult for you. In Christian's case, in Pilgrim's Progress, he there had to fight this great dragon, Apollyon. Well, what did Bunyan mean by these slips going down into the valley of humiliation? I think he meant this. 
when you go down into this valley of trouble or affliction or persecution, don't think to yourself, I don't deserve this. Why would God do this? You and I know those kinds of thoughts because we have them. And they do set us up for much heartache and fear and distrust in the valley of humiliation. In the second book of Pilgrim's Progress, the story of Christian's wife and his children and others, they also go down into the valley of humiliation. But they don't slip as Christian did. Why? Because they are already low. There's no pride of place or position or possessions in them. And so they don't fear losing anything in the valley of humiliation. Compare what they found in the valley with what Christian found. Christian found a dragon, but they only found a peaceful, verdant, green valley. Their guide, Greatheart, said to them, "'Tis true, Christian did meet Apollyon the dragon here, with whom he had a sore combat, but that fray was the fruit of those slips that he got in his going down the hill. For they that get slips there must look for combats here.'" But let me uh, share with you what Greatheart the guide said to uh, Christiana and the others with her about their time. Uh, he says, we will come again to this valley of humiliation. It is the best and the most fruitful piece of ground in all these parts. It is good ground. And as you see, consists much in meadows. And if a man was to come here in the summertime as we do now, if he knew nothing of what went before with Christian, and if he also delighted himself in the sight of his eyes, he might see that that which would delight him. Behold how green this valley is, also how beautified with lilies. I have also known many laboring men that have got good estates in the valley of humiliation, for God resists the proud, but gives more and more grace to the humble. For indeed it is very fruitful soil, and doth bring forth by handfuls. Some also have wished that the next way to their father's house were there, that they might be troubled no more with either hills or mountains to go over. But the way is the way. And there's an end. We'll go back to uh, Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. Ask yourself, what is my concept of how God is good to me? How do I understand the psalmist's declaration about the Lord's goodness in the context of His suffering? Let me give you a more difficult question to ponder. 
How do you understand God's goodness in times of suffering when you read verse 75 of Psalm 119? I know, O Lord, that you, your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. What you are going through now, what I'm going through, we may think of in terms of trouble and affliction, but do we think of it in terms of God's goodness and faithfulness to us? We should. And that's one of the lessons of the psalm. One reason for trusting God in these times of trouble is found in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. You see, your Creator knows you, and whatever affliction befalls you is within His knowledge of you and how He has made you. In the psalmist's case, he knew that the affliction was serving a purpose. It brought him back from straying. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, by virtue of my afflictions, I now keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. I learned, verse 71, that the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So see then, affliction and trouble persecutions as sanctifying providences for you, God's sanctifying providences for you. And so we've seen now the life of the afflicted and briefly the faithfulness of the Lord in the afflictions. But now let's turn our thoughts to what is the hope of the afflicted. It's verse 81. I hope in your Word. In the midst of the psalmist's situation, what means more to him than anything else? It's God's Word. Notice again in verses 81 to 88, you have all seven references to God's covenantal revelation. His Word, His promise, statutes, law, commandments, precepts, and testimonies. In the midst of affliction, the psalmist hopes in God's Word, longs for His promise, has not forgotten His statutes, nor forsaken His precepts, and His desires above everything else, life, just to keep the Lord's testimonies. Now, this theme of desire for God's Word is repeated throughout the psalm. Now here are a few examples. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 47, I delight in your commandments, which I love. 
Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Why is this? Because of the great value of the word of God in times of trouble. Verse 36, when hearts are turned to God's word, we are turned from selfish gain. Verse 37, when we're turned to God's word, we are turned away from worthless things and trusting in them. And note this, you either trust God or you trust worthless, vain, and empty things. And what you trust will be your reward. Trust God and He will be your great reward. But mark the words of Job 15, verse 31. Let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, in worthless things, for vanity shall be his recompense. What you trust will be your reward. Well, here are some other virtues of God's Word in times of trouble. Verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 105, the Word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It guides you through these difficult circumstances, how to think through these circumstances. Similarly, verse 130, the unfolding of your Word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You see, God's Word makes you wise. And it gives you skill for living through the difficult days. The Word of God gives peace in times of trouble. Verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And lastly, but not exhaustively, look at verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. God's word, beloved, is life-giving. What did Peter say to Jesus? Lord, whom, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, as John chapter 6, verse 68. Later, what did Jesus say on his last night with the disciples? John 15, abide in me and I in you. Abide in my love. How do we do that? John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so go back to verse 68 and look at the whole verse. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You want to know how God is good to you in times of afflictions? Here is one way. He teaches you His Word. And He not just teaches it to you. Verse 36, he inclines your heart to keep it. Well, this is Advent. 
And so I want you to see Jesus in this psalm. We've perhaps seen ourselves. I want you to see Jesus. He fulfilled this psalm as the afflicted man, as the man who was surrounded by enemies and adversaries, pursued with falsehood and lies by kings and princes and rulers who dug a pit for him. But he also fulfilled it as the man who supremely delighted in the Lord's commandments and who kept them. He did for us what we can't do. Our heart's desire may be, and it should be, to keep the law and to seek Him in His Word. But I'm not pressing this upon you as law, to live under the law. It is still grace. Ponder, if you will, later, if you read the entire psalm, I encourage you to do that. Consider the last verse of the psalm. I have gone astray. Not Jesus who fulfilled this psalm. He kept it all. He delighted in it. Did for us what we could not do to secure for us what? The covenant blessings that come upon us. As we celebrate the incarnation, remember the Son of God set aside His crown in heaven to take the form of a servant and to enter the valley of humiliation. Persecuted, pursued, hunted, falsely accused and crucified, but all the way delighting in His Father's will and loving us to the end. Uh, in the first hour this morning, Ronnie uh, mentioned verse uh, 20, chapter 3 of Ephesians, that God is able to do abundantly, exceedingly above all that we can think or ask. He said, that has to be in the top 10 <laughs> of verses, and I would agree with him, but let me give you another one. This is perhaps my favorite verse in all the Bible. John 13, verse 1. When Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. To the end. Let me show you some echoes of that phrase in Psalm 119. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Verse 112, incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And here's the point. If Jesus loved us to the end by going to the cross and laying down his life for us, the response of faith for us is to love him back by staying in his word and seeking keep it to the end. If we'll do that, then come what may, whatever troubles, the valley of humiliation will be a place of peace and life for us. Let me close um, with just another um, piece of what Greatheart said about the valley of humiliation. Uh, in this valley, our Lord formerly had His country house. He loved much to be there. He loved also to walk these meadows, for He found the air was pleasant. 
Besides, here a man shall be free from the noise and from the hurryings of this life. All states are full of noise and confusion. Only the valley of humiliation is that empty and solitary place. Here a man shall not be so let and hindered by his contemplation as in other places he is apt to be. This is a valley that nobody walks in but those that love a pilgrim's life. And though Christian had the hard hat to meet here with Apollyon and to enter with him a brisk encounter, yet I must tell you that in former times men have met with angels here and found pearls here and have in this place found the words of life. So again, if you're in the valley of humiliation or going into it, stay in the word, seek God. If you're not there, you will be someday. What should you do? Stay in the word, seek God, and prepare for those days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great word, this great psalm that we might learn from it. Again, the prayer, open to us wondrous things in your law. Give us minds to understand and hearts inclined to keep them. We are thankful for these things. And for the one who went before us, Jesus Christ, the ultimate psalmist in times of affliction who stayed the course ran it for us our great forerunner we are thankful that he endured the cross that we might have life and the forgiveness of sins in christ's name amen